You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Our friends Katie and Lyle at SunPowered Yacht helped us expand our solar array. Their SunPower authorized dealer and offer both flexible panels and fixed frame panels ranging from 50 watts to 410 watts. These are super high efficiency solar panels, which means more power in less space. Katie and Lyle are both sailors and have lived off the grid for over eight years. They provide free consultation to help you size and build a DIY system. Check out their website for more info sunpoweredyachts.com and use the promo code MORSEALPHA to get 10% off their flexible panels. Today's episode is about GPS and we all use GPS in many things like our phones, our laptops, in Siri, like when we ask him or her to find a great restaurant or something nearby. And of course, many of our listeners will have GPS chart plotters aboard their boats. But did you know that GPS is also important when it comes to the electrical grid and traffic lights? Uh, We're going to find out more about that stuff today. We've got two experts in GPS to talk about this amazing technology and the risks we face with using it. We've got Pauline Cook, who spent 30 years in the U.S. Coast Guard and sailed for over six years on ships in both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans before moving into vessel traffic and search and rescue divisions. She started sailing before the advent of GPS and during her career witnessed firsthand the transition from traditional to electronic navigation. She is currently a director at the Resilient Navigation and Timing Foundation. Uh, We've also got Logan Scott, who has over 40 years of GPS engineering experience covering both receivers and satellites. He's an active advocate for GPS location assurance, jammer detection, and signal authentication. Logan is a fellow of the Institute of Navigation, and he is the author of Interference, Origins, Effects, and Mitigation in PNT 21. He holds 46 U.S. patents. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. But let's just start off with a little story. I started sailing in in 1992 as a student in a program called uh, SEA, Sea Education Association out of Woods Hole, Massachusetts. And a big part of that training, this is when I was in college, was learning celestial navigation. Because at that time there really wasn't uh, GPS as we know it for the affordable for the you know affordable GPS for the consumer. Um, they had a big machine I remember called the Sat Nav, and um, which my understanding was a primitive version of GPS today. But I also heard these terms that they threw around GNSSS. Um, of course, they had a Loran on board. But I was hoping that I could just get a basic under uh, you know explanation from you guys on what those things are, GPS, GNSS, Loran, SatNav, and begin to break those things down. Let, let, me, let me clear up some of the acronym stuff. Okay, so GPS is a Global Positioning System, and that is the U.S. system operated by the, uh, the U.S. Air Force and uh, now Space Force. Okay, and so uh, what that is, is at least on the space side, 
there's 31 satellites that are currently active. And in order to navigate, you need to see at least four of them. And they're going around the Earth, so, so you don't see all 31 at the same time. But as long as you can see four of them, you can figure out where you are. The only thing that they really put out is basically, here's the position. In other words, latitude, longitude, and altitude. And they'll say uh, what your velocity is if you're moving. But they don't do anything with regards to maps. Um, and it's really important to understand that, that the GPS system is not listening to you. You're listening to it, but it's a one-way system coming down to the Earth. So, so it's not like the government can monitor where you are based on, on GPS. Now, if you tell someone else where you are, well, then uh, uh, you know, they'll, they'll know where you are. And so um, you know, a lot of other countries looked at this, and that's where we get to GNSS, which is Global Navigation Satellite System. And there are three other major foreign systems out there. The first one is GLONASS, which is the Russian system. And that's been around since the late 70s, early 80s. And then we have the European system, the EU system called Galileo. And that one's been around operational since, I'm going to say, roughly 2015. Um, and there's a Chinese system called BDS, which is Beidou... Uh, system. Okay, BDS. That one's been operational again for about five years. And so each one of these systems is producing an independent navigation solution. Now, the way that a lot of modern cell phones work is they actually listen to all the systems. In other words, you just need to see four satellites. You don't necessarily care that they're, they're all U.S. satellites or all Chinese satellites or oh. something like that. And the advantage of that is if you only need to see four satellites and you're in a dense urban environment and there's buildings that get in the way and you can't hear certain satellites, well, if you can hear all the systems that are out there, you can come up with a pretty good navigation solution. Okay, so um, there's a lot of performance benefits there. And also the, the overall accuracy is better. Now, having said that, one of the concerns you have, uh, particularly in the U.S., is that uh, the FCC, the Federal Communications, uh, let's see, FCC, Federal Commission. Communication Commission. Right. Commission. Right. Thank you. <laughs> the FCC, um, they basically do not allow you to receive uh, the Chinese system BDS. So even though yeah. your cell phone has the capability, and if you step over into Canada, you know, you go about maybe three meters into Canada, all of a sudden it'll, it'll just perform better uh, because it starts using the Chinese system as well. Um, you're not allowed to use that in the U.S., but you are allowed to use uh, GPS and GLONASS and uh, uh Galileo. And the reason for GLONASS, strangely enough, is, is it's more of a historical artifact. It's been around so long and so many people have been using it for so many years that it sort of got grandfathered in as a system that you, that you are allowed to use. And that's the Russian so, system, right? Um, yeah, that's the Russian okay. system. Yeah. Okay. But the advantage of this is that the entire systems have actually gone down in the past. So as an example, on April Fool's Day, 2014, the entire uh, GLONASS system actually went down in the sense that um, the data saying where the satellites are was wrong. And so if you used just GLONASS, you would have gotten 50 uh, nautical mile kind of errors. In other words, they, they were just huge errors. Hmm. And the reason that, that you didn't hear much about that was because most of the cell phones were sitting there listening to all the systems and going, oh, well, <laughs> GLONASS is clearly something's wrong with that. Let's not use that for now. And so independently, the receivers were able to figure out, hey, there's a problem there. And so uh, one of the things that, that's really important in navigation, of course, is you want to wear your belts and your suspenders and all that kind of stuff. And so when we talk about GNSS, that's what that's really about, is, is it allows you to use all the different systems that are out there 
and come up with a composite solution. Now, I know you had some other acronyms there. I remember GPS and GNSS. What, yeah. what was the other acronyms you were asking oh, about? Oh, you know, SatNav, what that really means. Okay, so let's talk about SatNav. Yeah. Okay, so SatNav stands for Satellite Navigation. Yeah. And so the, the systems that I've talked about so far, um, they're all pretty similar in their, their parameters. But there's a whole new generation of SatNav, which is coming out, which operates in lower orbits. And uh, these are sometimes called LEO or, or low Earth orbit systems. And there's another one called Zona. And these, these are very much in the developmental phases, but um, these are going to solve particular uh, SatNav uh, problems that we have with, with some of the, the more global systems. So uh, these are coming along uh, as well. So SatNav is just sort of everything. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. So in that big SatNav box we had was was looking at what systems, probably the Russian system for sure. Chances are it was just looking at GPS. Okay. If it was a TI-4, given that you were Woods Hole and, and that Woods Hole was buying uh, TI-4100s at that time, chances are if you're doing anything with, with plate deformations and plate tectonics and stuff like that, it was probably uh, the TI-4100. What I remember about SatNav back in the early 90s, late 80s, was that you would get one fix, maybe, every 12 hours, if you if, uh -huh. if you were in the right place at the right time. But it wasn't very often. So it was a little bit like Celestial Nav, but it was, I guess, a little bit more reliable in that you could, you could actually plan on getting a, a fix with it. Yeah. Now, I, when I think about GPS, I think of it kind of like, like um, celestial nav, where you, you shoot celestial bodies, the sun is the only one you get, and then you do a running fix. But if you shoot, you know, morning and, and dusk, or, you know, dawn and dusk, you can get three or four or five stars or planets, whatever it happens to be, and then you get a fix. It is, it's the same concept, right? Except you're, you're using satellites, or is it different? Um, there are some differences. The main thing with, with uh, celestials is that you're basically measuring angles. And with SatNav, you're, you're primarily measuring ranges. And so you're, you're not taking bearings in the class sense. You're just sort of getting ranges to uh, four satellites. Well, and the range is determined using uh, a difference in time. Yeah, so, so that's the other thing to understand about all of the, uh, the GNSS. They're, they're basically atomic clocks in space. And so they're very precise in their time of transmission. And so um, you know what time they transmitted the signal you know what time you receive it. And so that difference tells you how far away the satellite is. And so that's, that's one key piece of information. And then the other thing is the satellite needs to tell you where it is. And so there's a very low data rate. Uh, it's about 50 bits per second. And that tells you where the satellite is. And so with those two pieces of information, you can figure out where you are. And so, uh, again, this sort of comes back to something I was saying earlier. You never talk to the satellites. You just listen to them. And then based on receiving four of them and measuring those ranges, you can figure out where you are. Got it. Okay. Very neat. Okay. Here's the other funny thing is that you also get the time very precisely. Your, your time, you get time to an accuracy of about, uh, let's see, one-tenth of a millionth of a second. So basically 100 mm -hmm. nanoseconds. Mm-hmm. And so that very precise time, you know, you were mentioning the electrical grid and stuff like that. Well, the reason the electrical grid cares about time is one of the things they really like to know is where their power lines have gone down. 
And so one of the things that they can do is they, they can squirt a signal into one end of the power line and measure how long it takes for the reflection from where the, uh, uh, the power line went down takes to come back. And then based on that, they can say, well, the signal went about 20 miles down the power line, and then it came back. So look down the power line about 20 miles, and that's where uh, bad things have happened. I got gotcha. you. Okay, I want to I go back to this timing thing. It makes me think of that organization that you joined, Resilient Timing and NAV Foundation, Pauline, and I, I want to know more about what that is. Well, it's a nonprofit, so it's a 501c3, mm-hmm. um, and it's <clears throat> chartered in uh, Virginia. So <clears throat> I guess the premise behind it was that um, when Dana, the president, retired from the Coast Guard as a, a senior executive, he felt like there was still one thing he hadn't done yet, and it was making sure that that um, everybody knows that GPS is got some vulnerabilities and that we need to make sure that we have other ways to navigate or to do timing or to do mm. all the other things that we get from GPS that your general person on the street doesn't know about. Mm-hmm. For instance, the ATM system wouldn't be available. I think some people notice when, uh, like at the cash register, their computers aren't working and they can't charge things. You know, they have to use cash. Um, that can be, it isn't necessarily all the time, but a problem with connection to timing that comes from the GPS. So there are sort of um, chain reactions that can occur if there's interference with GPS or the system is, is not working properly. Um, so all that said, Dana had friends and uh, coworkers and people that he knew that he, he thought he might get on board with the, the message that uh, we need to get the word out in all the different areas that it people could be impacted because not only is, is your pocketbook potentially impacted, there are other things like emergency services and and other things that we rely on really extensively that people aren't aware that if there's a hiccup or if someone is intentionally or unintentionally interfering with everybody else's GPS are going to be affected. So that that's really... I guess a, a nutshell a summary. Um, there's a whole lot more on the website, and there's we put out um, regular blogs and, and information on what's happening in other places. And we're not the only ones with the problem. You know, we're not the only right. country. I mean, everybody has the uh, potential to have their GPS or their global system interfered with. Right. And this word resilience for it. That's what is that all about? Uh, well, it's it's uh, making sure you have more than one means of uh, navigation or one more more than one means of timing. For instance, this podcast or a video um, call all relies on this timing. And Logan can probably get you a whole lot more detail on this. But uh, if it's not working, we wouldn't be able to have really a very good conversation uh, because the systems all rely on precise time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The resilient part is having more than one means of, of obtaining that, the uh, time, navigation, and position information that you need to go about your daily life, basically. So it's, in, it's, it's not just in the user end, but it's, um, it's in the people who maintain the infrastructure. That's what we, all the, the bridges, the roads, and in this case, the uh, navigation, position, and timing system that we rely on to just do, go about our business every day. 
Mm. Yeah. So when you talk about uh, resilience, that's sort of a belts and suspenders kind of thing. But the problem we have with, with GNSS, all of them have very similar vulnerabilities. In other words, you, yes. you can mess with them all pretty much the same way. <laughs> and so uh, the final acronym that you'd asked about was LORAN. Right. Okay. I did. LORAN A was developed back in World War II. And LORAN C was first commissioned in 1957. So that's like 64, 65 years ago. And uh, if you ever read a book called Tuxedo Park, uh, Alfred Loomis was one of the guys that was a big uh, proponent of Loran. Hmm. And so Loran had been around for years and years. And one of the things that you can pick off of Loran is not only position, but also time. Ah. And so all of those uh, stations had been disciplined using atomic clocks. And when I say discipline, I don't mean anything S&M or anything like that. It's just, you know, how you set the timing on the thing. So... Um, in any event, that system had been around for years and years, and in 2010, uh, Department of Homeland Security actually turned it off, okay? And uh, uh, so there's been uh, a move to bring the system back online, and there, there's companies like Ursanav and so on that have been trying to uh, basically provide transmitters that are very portable, can be set up quickly, and set up a backup. And so these could potentially provide you with some resilience. And the reason I, I, I'm mentioning all this is that the uh, Loran system operates at 100 kilohertz. In other words, it's a very low frequency system. So something that would mess up a, a GPS system is not going to affect the Loran system. So it's completely independent. Similarly, if we're talking about uh, celestial navigation, clouds can really mess that up, mm. but radio frequency stuff is not going to mess it up. Right. And so... Whenever you talk about having a high resiliency system, what you really need is cross checks. And uh, so, the, the the GNSS receivers they do cross checks, you know, against their other uh, systems out there. But at the same time, if you if you're out in a in a in a ship or or, or a vessel, you want to make sure that you're actually looking out the window, <laughs> making sure that you're not running into uh, the ground. And, and there have been instances where cruise ships have actually run ashore, okay, because they were following their GPS. In fact, that, that thing with the, the evergreen uh, forever forward, I think, you know, the one in uh, Chesapeake yeah. Bay, my guess is they were failing to look out the window. You know, they're just relying on, on you know, the electronic navigation system. I don't know anything one way or another, but that would be my guess. Right. Okay. Well, not just well, looking out the window, but probably also having the crew taking – uh, fixes basically with other pieces of equipment on the ship. Uh, so if mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they had a pilot on board because the pilots all look out the window, at least the older ones. So they're trained to do that. But um, but they do, do G use GPS and they started back in the early 2000s when it became available to them because they noticed that you know they could they could tell within a few feet on the bow and the stern of a 600 700 foot vessel that they could tell where it was in relation to the dock. And that was extremely valuable to them um, when they're maneuvering in such tight conditions. Hmm. But they also, uh, you know, their, their training systems, I'm sure, are still quite uh, focused on the traditional means of navigation. And in their case, it's more, it's, it's mostly memorizing where all the hazards are and looking out the right. window. But they're the high end or the, sort of the extreme end of the, the NBA end of, of the navigators out there versus your, your average either recreational boater or even a commercial um, pilot who 
just gets their boat from one point to the next and does it with everything available, you know, and may rely Mm -hmm. more on GPS because they meet minimum Coast Guard requirements, but they do the easiest way to get there and the safest. I also wanted to say that although I I spent so much time in the Coast Guard, um, I have been retired for a number of years and I'm not I'm not speaking for them in any way here because mm-hmm. um, okay. I haven't cleared well, anything mentioned- of what I've said with them. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, we've had some folks from the Coast Guard on the on the podcast before, and I know that uh, they do have to kind of cross-check. And you had just mentioned cross-check after, actually, and um, having having uh, multiple GPSs on board or that sort of thing to, to, uh, to duplicate the issue or to duplicate the information. So on our, our program, More Alpha Expeditions, we uh, teach traditional navigation, paper and chart. No, chart, paper charts and, uh, and, you know, compasses and rulers and that sort of thing. And um, <clears throat> we teach that first, and we like to spend a number of days doing that so that it, it really builds seamanship skills, we find. And people are looking around like we were just talking about. You're looking around. You're paying attention to the buoy. You're paying attention to that point of land and what looks like might be a shallow spot over there instead of just focusing on a chart plotter and, you know, passing by buoys and not even knowing you're passing by them sort of thing. And, huh. and so, at, you know, the last day of our trip or the second to last day of the trip, we do bring out the chart plotter so people can learn to use that as well. But now they already have those skills where they can do it. They can navigate without the chart plotter. And a lot of people use those traditional navi- uh, navigation skills as a backup. But we, you know, we advocate for using it as your, your primary mode of navigation to keep your skills sharp and your seamanship skills sharp as well. So I'm just wondering what you guys thought about that, you know, mentioning the multiple options for finding your position, et cetera. Well, you hit on the, the key point, and that is maintaining your skill. So it's important you, you keep up your skills. And so uh, one of the, the potential pitfalls of using a system like GPS is it is so easy to use it. And so uh, as an experienced hiker, let me give you an example of one of the things that, that I used to be really good about you know, when I was out there without GPS, was I'd always turn around and take a look at where I came from so that I'd have a mental reference of the path back. Okay. With GPS, um, it's really easy to forget to do that because you've got this little little trail of crumbs uh, sitting along there. So the, uh, the, the, the point to be taken here is that it's really easy to have your skills uh, degrade on you. And I think that's particularly true of celestial navigation because that's fairly complex. And uh, those skills go away fairly quickly. So unless you're using them on a regular basis, you're just not going to have them to to rely on. Yeah. Well, and I would also say that using all your your tools and making sure that they actually work, you know, they're not rusted or Mm -hmm. is pretty important. Um, You were talking earlier about GPS not like sending a signal back to anyone to so that they can't like identify where you are. But there is a system out there called the automated identification system that certain commercial mm-hmm. vessels of certain sizes and larger and depending on where they're going to, but have to have turned on. And that does actually provide a signal to everybody else in the area um, as to, you know, what, where you're going and where you are and what your name is, if you're, if you're doing it right, if you're making sure that all that information is in there. And that's, it's a, it's a very uh, handy navigation tool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just actually put the AIS transponder in this past year, a couple of years ago, I guess now. Um, 
and we're just you know recreational vessels, but a lot of them have it. And I, just a small side note is that you know AIS auto, automatic identification system lets people in your vicinity know your vessel's name, your vessel's length, your destination, your speed, your course, etc. Um, you know maybe in a 15 mile range or so VHF uh, line of sight type thing, and um, the thing is that so many people have it now commercial and recreational vessels, that we get lulled into this thing that all the vessels out there have AIS. But no, it's not true. Right. Some, some people yeah. don't have it, but enough people have it now that, we th that you fall into this mentality that everyone does. And, and this would happen, I worked on tugboats in Baltimore, and these guys just think everybody does. And they're like, why isn't that one showing up on AIS? Why isn't that little sailboat showing up on AIS? And and they're just, mm -hmm. it's it's it should be mandatory for everyone. Is is my feeling. If it's going to be mandatory for some, it should be mandatory for everybody. Well, also you're making the assumption they're all telling the truth. Well, it's all supposed to be electronically connected to your GPS too, and so it is very much affected by GPS and that position that they're getting from the GPS system. AIS has been used to identify a lot of uh, what's, what are called spoofing incidents. Mm. And, mm. and basically what's happening is people are broadcasting some false GPS signals. And the way that they're able to detect this is, is, is the AIS systems are reporting those GPS positions, which are false. And so you've got a bunch of boats going around in circles. And it has, and it's on land, and so you know this is pretty suspicious. You know when boats are going around in circles on land, right? And so you know, these are the so-called crop circle uh, incidents. So uh, when it comes to AIS, it's a great system, but it's relying on everybody to be telling the truth. And there's a lot of reasons people might not want to tell the truth about where they are. Right. You know, for instance, you might not want to identify the the the, the, the true nature of your ship. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like cargo. I've heard stories of... Exactly. That's right, your cargo. Uh, and fishermen, I believe, as well, fishing in places they're not supposed to be fishing. Exactly. I've heard. Or even if they're they're on the up and up and they don't want their buddies or anybody else to know where their best fishing spot is. Mm -hmm. And that goes from, you know, recreational to commercial. Uh, they, you know... Yeah, right. They're very secretive. Oh, yes. Yes. Which which can be a challenge for the Coast Guard when we need to find them uh, or they're overdue or something like that. So right. uh, that, that right. would be the case where we would need to find them uh, or want to find them. You're right. Search and rescue type stuff. I, I Let me shift gears a little bit. Um, we're all using GPS in our cars at this point, right? And uh, we'll a lot of people use their phone and you're following along and it says make a left here, make a right there. And all of a sudden there's like a hiccup and you're like, how did I miss my turn? I, I, I've been following along with, you know, listening to my phone. And it's been saying, how, how did I miss my turn? I, I feel like, Pauline, you had this incident happen to you at one point. And I think sometimes it's, it's like it's just a hiccup in the GPS signal possibly. Uh, but I was, as I was reading that, I was thinking about, well, that's not a big deal when you're on land because you miss your turn, you're still on the road, and you just loop around and go back and get on your turn. But if you're on a boat in shallow waters and that happens, that could potentially be disastrous and you possibly could go aground or you know hit something. Just wondering what you guys think about that. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, we all have to sort of do a risk analysis, as we used to call it, before we go out anywhere. And um, and I've, I guess I've done enough reading about, there was a, oh, I forget the name of the book. It, he tells some very good stories about some tragic, actually, about people who followed the GPS to uh, bad places. 
um, and, and never figured it out. Uh, but on the water, it's just like just about everything else that you're doing on the water, the risk is higher well, in different ways, I guess, than, than in a car. But uh, because you have three dimensions to deal with in a car, you have you have three dimensions. But like Logan was saying, that you're that you can you know, pull over, you know, stop. Right. In a sense, you can do that on, on a boat, too. You can put your anchor down, but it's a little harder. It takes a little longer, generally. And you have mm-hmm. a whole lot more uh, uh, elements to deal with, with the wind and the currents and all that. Uh, whereas right. with a car, you just stop and, you know, you get out and pull out a map. Um, yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. it, that on the water, it's it, or in the air, for that matter. But you can read the stories about loss of GPS for the aircraft. Anyway, that that's my take on it. Right. Well, sometimes the problem is the maps, and that's not even a GPS problem. Oh, right. And so exactly. I'll just give you an example of this. Okay, because GPS just tells you where you are, yeah. you know, in terms of latitude, longitude, and altitude. Correct. And so I was up in uh, Missoula, Montana uh, a few years back, and I was trying to get uh, on campus there. And the GPS uh, coming off of my cell phone was basically saying, turn left here. And I'm going, there's, there is no left turn. And it was trying to direct me across a pedestrian bridge. Mm. Okay. Uh, somehow or other, uh, it thought that that was a place that I could drive a car. And so that sort of raises another question is, is, well, what kind of mode do you have the GPS operating in? So as an example, if I had had it in a pedestrian mode, and it's trying to give me directions as a pedestrian, that would have been an entirely appropriate set of directions. And one big problem we're having in the U.S. right now is bridge strikes. And that's basically where a truck that is is 14 mm-hmm. feet tall tries to go underneath the bridge that's 12 feet tall. Right. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of YouTubes. Well, I know I have. <laughs> uh, seen a lot of YouTubes of you know, trucks having their, their, their tops come off. And so the issue is that the navigation is is good. The GPS is working fine. But the set of the maps, uh, even the maps can be good. But if you don't know what kind of vehicle you're trying to put through there, uh, you can run into problems with that. And I'm sure you've seen this with, with ships, Pauline, where, where too big a ship is trying to go through too small a channel. Oh, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they, it usually makes the news, unless oh. it's a, a smaller sailboat. And then it's the local news, but not national. But, yeah, the big ones... Or it makes it makes Instagram for sure. Yeah, exactly. So, so what I'm trying to allude to is that you need to know the context of what you're trying to do. In other words, the receiver, you know, the the the, the GPS receiver, it's just a piece of electronics, and if it doesn't know what kind of environment it's trying to operate in, um, it can uh, tell you to do the wrong things, even though it might be appropriate for for someone else. Yeah. And then the other thing is when you talk about GPS losses, I'm sure we've all had this experience where where you're you're navigating along and you hear. Uh, GPS signal loss, and you're sitting outside, you know, there, there's plain uh, view to the sky. Mm-hmm. And what that's oftentimes about is one of the, uh, the, it's usually a trucker, has turned on a GPS jammer trying to cover his own location. And uh-huh. of course, he's not only jamming his own receiver, he's jamming other ones uh, in the immediate neighborhood. And so uh, that can raise uh, all kinds of problems. And, and I'm sure we've all had this experience. Right. I was just going to say, and sometimes it's, it, I hate to call it legitimate uh, interference, but there are you know, government-run um, mm-hmm. antennas that uh, will interfere with your GPS because they're strong enough and they can do it. Um, and, and it's not usually a problem uh, unless you're relying on it. Um, or, you know, nobody's complained loud enough with the right folks, uh, FCC, for instance. But there are communities that really rely. I mean, 
uh, for their business, for instance. Um, so, so you you have a um, commercial or a recreational business for uh, teaching people navigation and sailing and that sort of thing. Um, well, the the farmers out there, a lot of them have moved to uh, precise positions for just putting a seed in the ground and putting the fertilizer in and mm-hmm. the the uh, herbicides and the pesticides and all that. And in some states, um, it's very important as far as the pe- pesticides and herbicides go is um, being able to measure how much they put out because it's it's uh, being look at, looked at more and more cl- closely. So mm-hmm. for them, you know, how many seeds they put out and and putting a minimal amount of, of extra stuff on there is, is important for the bottom line, you know, for their business. And so interference with GPS in those instances has a, a huge impact because going back to the old way of doing it, um, where, you know, you drive the tractor down the row and come back uh, adjacent row and back and forth like that still works. Uh, but the, uh, the impact on their efficiency goes way down. Um, not to say that on the water it doesn't, uh, because I think it does too. Um, mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. a sort of a plug for having alternate means of navigation or ways to do what you do on a daily basis. And the, yeah. the comment on the maps um, is true on the water too. I watched it with the, the NOAA folks that put out the charts and, um, and they have had their own challenges. And I was I was reading about, um, and this is true of a lot of systems, um, where one part becomes very, very precise, and the rest of the system that is needed to to work together isn't as precise. And so people are thinking the whole system becomes precise together, and it doesn't. And so, like with uh, with the maps on your cell phone, people would get bad directions because the maps weren't as good as the GPS signal. Mm-hmm. And that was right. going on what, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. Now, now Pauline brings up an interesting system, the precise navigation. So when you talk about normal GPS accuracies, it's somewhere around two to five meter kind of numbers. Right. But when you get into the precise positioning systems, the accuracy is about maybe one centimeter. And so just to put a visual on that, it basically can tell you whether you're inside a ping pong ball or outside of the ping pong ball. That's basically the area of radius for the errors. But it's important in certain applications like surveys. You know, if you're trying to put out footers for a building and and you're using GPS to to do that, it's very important. Or uh, I I was involved in a legal case uh, about 10 years ago where people were installing stuff at a zoo for the drainage system for the elephants. And they basically were setting up the pipes and they were just using GPS heights to to lay down the pipes. And it turned out that instead of flowing downhill, the water flowed uphill. In other words, the slope of the pipe was wrong. And so uh, this is where some of these uh, very precise systems uh, become important. And this is also important when you start talking about uh, uh, drones and autonomous vehicles and and figuring out which lane you're in and so on. Um, So, you know, these very high precision systems are Mm. out there. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that when you start talking about resiliency and backups and so on, what's going to back you up to an accuracy of a centimeter? There isn't much that can do that. So as an example, if we talk about Loran, Loran can be pretty accurate, but it's not going to get you down to one centimeter uh, kind of accuracy. So 
for all intents and purposes, it is not providing you with a backup if you're doing uh, precision farming or, or precision survey kind of applications. And so the kind of systems that provide backup at that level are, are what are called uh, total stations, which are basically lasers uh, swinging around. And so um, a lot of times what happens is we become reliant on GPS providing the, these one or two meter kind of accuracies. And we say, well, our backup has to be that good. But in point of fact, you really don't need that kind of accuracy for a lot of applications. So as an example, example in timing, you know, very oftentimes people say, well, GPS is accurate to 100 nanoseconds, which is very, very good accuracy. But for things like the ATM or the traffic lights and so on, you don't need that kind of accuracy. But, but because everybody's using GPS for that, they're saying, well, that's our requirement. And so th there's, a, there's a major distinction between the requirements for accuracy and um, uh, what the systems like GPS are actually providing. Well, and, and so on the water, you know, I, I think everybody who owns a boat or operates a boat needs to think about you know, what level of accuracy is good enough. And some of it is driven, mm -hmm. I think, just by the tools we have, right? So you got a bearing, mm -hmm. um, Alidaid, or you've got a, a hand, I forget what they're called, but a, a, a hand tool that, to get a bearing on the water and how quickly you can get it. It's still, you know, it's still a, a fix. It's still mm -hmm. a, a, some information about where you are um, so that you can more safely navigate to your destination. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and maybe for most boats, you know, it, a meter or more is sufficient um, yeah. as far as accuracy goes. And, and frankly, that was pretty good back when I was first learning how to navigate on the water because you couldn't get anything better than that. Um, and Loran, uh, I'm not sure what e-Loran accuracy is. I know they're working on that um, as far as, uh, you know, what the backup and the back and the precision or accuracy required for that but if we can talk about it, i just want to go back to this one quote that is just blowing my mind every time i think about it is that this guy brad parkinson do you know him he was they call him the father oh, yeah. of gps he was one of the early mm -hmm. founders i think when he delivered the system he said the reliance on satellite navigation and timing systems has become a single point of failure for much of america and is our largest unaddressed critical infrastructure problem which is what right. we're talking about and I, it just, it's so hard to believe that because we rely on it so heavily and it's like the one and only thing we have going for us that runs all these systems we're talking about. So how, how did we get ourselves into this position to rely on one egg in one basket? Well, let's talk about critical infrastructure first. Um, DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, identifies 16 sectors which, have, uh, which are defined as critical infrastructure. 14 of them have critical dependencies on, on GPS, and I, I'm not sure who doesn't, but um, it, it, it covers all sorts of things. So, so let me give you an example. If we're talking about the police, you have a dispatcher, and the dispatcher knows where all the cars are. And so how are the cars saying where they are? Well, that's usually GPS-based. So basically, the, 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 the cars are receiving the GPS signals. They're reporting back to the dispatch saying, here I am. And so uh, the dispatcher is sitting there with a map that says, here's where all the cars are, and so they, they know how to, how to dispatch them. Well, it's not that hard to make all the cars be at the same location using some fake signals. Um, you know, so that's an example of, of a, uh, a critical problem. And I, I think that's what Brad was, was really talking about, is that, that we have all these dependencies, and at the same time, we don't have really good backups that, 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 that meet the requirements in terms of accuracy. GPS is so good at this 
that we've become uh, 100% reliant on it. So, um, yeah, that's one example. So think of a 25-watt light bulb, okay? And you're looking at this Damn. thing at a range of uh, 12,500 miles. Right. Okay, so this is a long ways away. And uh, it's a very, very weak signal. And if somebody wants to mess with that, it's not that hard to do. Right. So I think that, that that's basically what, what Brad is referring to. But, but also at the same time, the GPS frequency bands are highly protected bands. And, and what's happening is, is we're having encroachment from other systems like cellular systems and mm. so on. And those potentially can cause some, some interference issues into the GPS. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, frequencies are just very valuable. And so uh, the FCC and, and the U.S. government, they want to sell these frequencies. But if you put them too close to GPS, um, bad things can happen. And so uh, that's another concern that Brad has had is, 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 you know, all these cellular companies starting to, to have very close frequencies. Well, and they, so, used, to, they used to have a nice, wide, uh, quiet neighborhood, right? <laughs> they did. For the satellites. Right. And that then that's being encroached on, right? Yeah, it was, it was almost like a monastery. It was so quiet. Um, you know, we had very, very pristine spectrum uh, available. And, you know, now you have uh, cellulars. And cellular folks, you know, they're sort of like the party animals of the, uh, the, the frequency world mm -hmm. because they put out a lot of power. And, uh, you know, they, they're, they're, they're going to cause disturbances. So that is, that is, is one of the concerns that, that, that Brad has had. Interesting. It reminds me of single sideband. You know, back in the day, we'd use single sideband radios, but those have been encroached upon, and there's less and less frequencies, I think, available, or they're just so full of static that you can't even really use it that well anymore. Exactly. Sounds like we're going in the same well, direction here with GPS. We are. Well, and the FCC um, has, has started to look at, because of the, just a few years ago, a couple of years ago, there was a big... Um, Big conflict between the federal government, primarily, and, and DOD, uh, Department of Defense, and um, FCC uh, allocation of frequencies near the satellites. Um, and, and FCC was sort of of the mindset, well, you know, we're not giving away your frequencies. What, what's the big deal? And the big deal was that the it's a little bit like sound. You know, it does bleed over. So your neighbor might be mm -hmm. blasting their stereo even inside their house might actually end up in your house if your windows aren't thick enough or you know or they have it loud enough because they have capabilities to put things pretty loud these days um so whereas you know what might have been good 10 years ago as far as not hearing your neighbor now isn't good enough because they can crank their stereo so high or their amplifiers mm -hmm. or whatever mm -hmm. so so they are starting to look, uh, and I'm not speaking for FCC either, but I did read this in an article, um, at what perhaps there may be some way to look at the receivers and making them more precise as far as uh, taking out interference. But all the old receivers, it's just like, I think there was a quote on one of your other podcasts I listened to about some of these requirements, uh, just a, sort of a conspiracy to make everybody go out and buy new equipment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, that's what it feels like sometimes, you know, it's the old, old equipment has been uh, overtaken by the new and, and if you don't get the new stuff, you're kind of left out in the cold. And to some extent that does happen. Oh, we all know what happens, but, um, but it's, you know, it's, 
everything sort of uh, impacts something else, you know, and so it, yeah, right. Uh, any any system, you change one, something else is gonna feel it, you know, and and it just it, all together we kind of have to rise higher, maybe like with the tide or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, a lot of times you don't even know that you've got that old equipment there. And so I'll just give yeah. you an example of this. This happened back in the 2007 timeframe. So um, the Navy had a ship sitting uh, out in, uh, this is in San Diego. And they started broadcasting fairly low power, but right in the GPS frequency band. And so uh, what happened was uh, a lot of GPS receivers were interfered with. And so next thing you know, a medical paging system goes down. Mm. You go, why would a medical paging system be affected? Well, it turned out that the medical paging system was figuring out what frequency uh, it was transmitting on based on GPS. Because GPS gives you time, but it can also give you frequency. So they're using GPS for this. So the uh, the system basically says, okay, well, GPS is interfered with. Okay, therefore, I can't transmit anymore. And so basically, a medical paging system went down. Okay. As another example, um, about 150 cellular base stations, they lost their timing synchronization. And so uh, next thing that happened was you could you could start a call, but if you started moving around and you needed to, you got in range of another cellular base station, your call would be dropped because it's sort of like a trapeze act. <laughs> and and you know imagine trapeze artists that are not synchronized. I think you can see where this is going. Um, things get dropped. Oops, yes. And so uh, <laughs> calls got dropped. And so uh, these were some of the kinds of problems uh, that happened. And you might not expect this to happen because GPS is being jammed, but uh, uh, it can happen. Now, uh, uh, in addition to jamming, which I understand is fairly easy to do if you have a couple of utensils and like a cigarette lighter or something like that, um, and you can get these jammers pretty easily. But isn't there also some satellite hacking going on? Or is that a concern of ours? I don't, you know, that's certainly. Uh, uh, a major concern of the, the Department of Defense, you know, preventing somebody from messing with the satellites. Mm -hmm. But um, a more likely scenario is somebody generating a bunch of fake signals. And and sadly, that's become very easy to do as well. Okay. So, uh, you know, as an example, going back to the uh, example of the automatic identification system, AIS. Yeah. Um, back in 2017, a bunch of ships in the Black Sea all reported the same position. Uh. And, and obviously, the ships are not all at the same location. And the reason the AIS systems all reported the same position was there was what was called a spoofer in operation there, which was generating fake GPS signals. They all bought into this. And so uh, they all said that they were in the middle of the runway at the airport. Okay. Right. And so, um, you know, these kinds of things uh, can happen. And you might ask, well, why were they reporting they were in the middle of a runway at an airport? Well, it turns out that a lot of drones... One of the things that they have in them is prohibitions about operating near uh, uh, airports. In other words, if, if they if they think they're at an airport, they'll just sit themselves down on the ground. Uh -huh. And so it turned out that um, uh, Vladimir Putin was visiting that area, and somebody turned on a spoofer there. And so any drones that were in the area grounded themselves. Huh. And 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 un unfortunately, also a bunch of ships thought that they were in the middle of the airport too. And they grounded themselves. So, so these, no, the so, good news is they are still trained to, to look out the window and navigate without right. all that. But they do exactly. get yeah. they do get reliant on it, you know. And I don't know, as with somebody who's sailed, and and you know, it it is easy to gravitate toward the easiest method, you know. Yes, it and is. And the thing that seems like yeah. it's the most reliable when you're looking at it, when in fact, if it's being spoofed or something else is going on. 
you're not going to catch it unless you're looking out the window or you're, you're taking a fix through more traditional means. The other thing that I was thinking here um, as we were, I was listening was that just like on, on the land side with the vehicles, autonomous vehicles, um, they are looking uh, and in the air for the drones uh, at autonomous vessels. They've been working, the Navy's been working on it for some time, but uh, there are other, many other uh, commercial entities doing the same thing because the highest cost for any operation on the water is the personnel costs. Now, the key there is the safety aspect of it and knowing what you're doing, really. And, and so it's, a, it's still a huge hurdle, I think, to get there where, where everybody's doing it or uh, a whole lot of people are doing it. But they are out there. And so just like with the AIS, assuming that everybody's got one and is broadcasting, it's, I, I was also thinking about the back and watch or listen to one of your podcasts about operating in fog and restricted visibility. Well, um, there, you know, the radar is pretty primary, but even then you have to realize that some things don't um, provide a radar return, right? So wood boats Mm -hmm. and with a low Mm -hmm. profile, you're not going to see them on your radar. And so you got to be looking out the window. You need to be listening. You need to be ready to stop at any time. So things that we learn, I think, as mariners, but also in any kind of operational or and even in engineering areas where uh, thinking, it's at least sometimes, uh, of the worst case scenario and what are you going to do about it and at least practicing it once in a while, I think is a good thing. Yeah, I remember we were up... Uh heading for uh, Newfoundland and looking for icebergs and um, realized, yeah, they don't show up on radar, by the way, icebergs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Some of the ones we saw did not, for sure. Um, okay, great. I do want to ask real quick about the Loran E. I've heard rumors about Loran E. Can, do you have any intel on that? Um, a little bit. There's a lot of variations on that. Loran E is actually, it, it's a, a new version of Loran, which has a, a little bit better data channel and so on. But having said that, Loran operates at such low frequencies that they can use something called a, a software-defined radio. And so there's a lot of companies that are trying different signals and different approaches to building Loran. And since there's no active Loran systems out there right now, you can, you can go playing around with the signal and, and try new approaches. So the, the core accuracy that you get out of these, it's, it's in the 50-meter kind of uh, repeatability. Mm. But having said that, if you've got a uh, specialized Loran receiver sitting in, in the harbor, okay, it can basically figure out, well, the Loran signal from this station is wrong by 20 meters, this one's wrong by 12 meters, and can actually send that data out and provide corrections. And so I've seen some indications that the, the accuracy, if you do all that correctly, is around six meters. Hmm. So, you know, that's just exceptional accuracy for, for a system like Loran. Right. I just wanted to um, mention that it, uh, I think it's generally considered uh, E-Loran. I think it stands for Enhanced Loran, right? Yeah, it does. And, and the enhancement is basically that it, it can support higher data rates and more data so that you can continue potentially do some of these differential corrections. But uh, again, the, the, the core problem with Loran right now, at least in the U.S., is, is it's not operational. And so, you know, you, you, you can talk about it, but it's not very useful. There are other systems out there like uh, Satellus, which is based on the Iridium satellites. Um, you might consider using that. But absent mm-hmm. uh, transmitters, you don't have anything. Right. Um, the problem with other satellites, even if they're uh, you know lower to the earth and, and maybe more reliable in many ways, um, 
or stronger signal is that it's still a common failure mode, as they say. I, I don't disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, an ab- you know, advocating for either man as, as the primary backup, but but it does seem to be pointing more and more in that direction, just folks in general, as they realize that um, they need a backup to GPS. And if you're and if you're not connected to a wire, like with fiber or some other cable or some something like that, mm-hmm. then you need perhaps you need something coming through the airwaves, and something that's on the terrestrial level, you know, the ground level, um, like Etheran might be a solution. Mm-hmm. So sort sort of testing t- uh, touching base on the five G. Um, that is trying to do that too, but in a different way. It's a different frequency and different uh, ease or or lack of ability to to protect the signal in certain instances. But because like Eloran, because it's such a low frequency, and Logan, you can tell me if I'm wrong. It's it's very reliable if you can receive it, right? Right. It, it it's yeah. it's hard to mess with the signal. That's cool. Yeah, it's hard to mess with yeah. Loran. I like it. Short of, of turning off the transmitter, which is exactly what DHS did. Right. Well, and that was a budgetary savings measure because they were looking at how much more accurate GPS is. And if you can mm-hmm. get GPS, right. uh, why do you need this other system that doesn't give you everything you need, right? And, and you need to mm-hmm. put your money where it has the biggest impact and all of that. And so not thinking about, well, resiliency is still kind of important, too. So. Right. In fact, it was kind of interesting. Back when that decision was being made in the 2006-2007 timeframe, there were a lot of cellular operators who were saying, keep on Loran because that's how we're, we're, we're setting up the timing on our base stations. Right. And uh, unfortunately, by turning off Loran, we lost that. And so now our cellular stations are more dependent on GPS than less dependent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More, more vulnerable at this point. Yeah. So I was driving a right. tugboat in Baltimore a couple of years ago. And repeatedly went aground, of course, in, in 30 feet of water. My depth sounder said 30 feet of water. But, of course, the tugboat on the chart plotter was hard aground and going across this little sandbar to get to the other cut. Well, actually, land, not a sandbar. I was going across land. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that happens a lot to us when we're out there sailing. A friends, friends of ours in Mexico had the same thing happen. And so for those of us who are relying heavily on GPS here, what, what sort of advice do you have? You know, this happens a lot. And what, what do you have as advice for our listeners to, in a way of wrapping up here, um, for those of us who do rely heavily on GPS, what should we be doing to help ourselves? Well, I think the most important thing to always keep in mind is the map is not the terrain. Or or, or in your case, I guess, the chart is not the depth. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, you definitely want to be looking out the window. You want to be cross-checking between different systems. In other words, is it making any sense, you know, that, that you're running aground there? So... Um, Again, you know, situational awareness is, is the key thing. Don't become complacent. You know, pay attention to all the data input that you have. And GPS is just one of them. And remember the basics, really. I mean, um, knowing the accuracy of your chart, mm-hmm. knowing what uh, datum it is based on, you know, knowing how often that area is dredged or if it's dredged ever, or, you know, what the currents do, you know, pulling out the coast pilot and reading up on what the currents do in that area and how rapidly an area can shoal after, even if it is dredged, you know, all that just fundamental seamanship knowledge that that we used to teach back before GPS still applies. Mm-hmm. It sure does. All right. That's great stuff. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming. I love this topic. It's so interesting, and I feel like it's going to be evolving, or it is evolving, and there's there's some new stuff on the horizon for us here in this world. So thanks for joining us for this discussion. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, you're welcome very much. Yeah. Enjoyed it. Me too, me too. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found. <laughs>